It's amazing. <laughs> Let's go get a drink. So how are you doing tonight? I'm pretty good. You're good. All right. The baby's a bit in bed. Finally. Finally. That was fun. So welcome back, everybody, to Writing in Real Life. This is your weekly dose of writing, publishing, marriage, and parenthood with me, Barry Liga, and my co-host and my wife, Morgan Baden. Hi. So as always, we have a lot to talk about today. The list just keeps getting longer. The list just keeps getting longer, which is great. I love it. It's awesome. Because I have to say, when we first decided to do this, when we first agreed to do this podcast, we had a list of, I think, five or six things to talk about. And there was a part of me that was worried we were going to run out of stuff. I thought we would have like six weeks of material, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I I really was worried that we weren't going to get any feedback. I was worried we wouldn't keep coming up with things on our own. And that hasn't happened. People are sending in suggestions that we love that. And, of course, we keep coming up with stuff, too, and that's great. So we've got plenty of stuff to talk about. But now every week I have the opposite fear, which is we're never going to get through all of this. (laughs) So this week, let's start off with some stuff that people gave us through feedback. I want to start off, Kate, who is uh, one of our international listeners, was responding to something that you talked about previously about Mm -hmm. feeling guilty if you're not sort of actively engaged with Leia all the time when she's awake. And she says, "Uh, I know that feeling. There's so much guilt wrapped up with parenthood, motherhood especially, going back to work. And she says she feels guilty planning to go back to work full-time and putting her child in daycare and wonders if we could talk a little bit about guilt, if it's useful or not, and if not, just how do you deal with it? Mm -hmm. And you've just gone back. You've just had two weeks now back full-time. Two weeks down, yeah. And so what about that guilt? How's that guilt treating you? Honestly, I was just thinking about this today, just unprompted by Kate's email or anything, but um, I feel really good. You know, the first... (laughs) That, I mean, I think that first week was pretty killer. Uh, I felt very guilty. I had a lot of emotions going on. Um, and now I feel like this is this is normal. This is our normal, and it's our version of normal. And the baby is totally fine, and I'm okay. And um, obviously, the baby's in great hands all day with you. So that, I think, really alleviates some of my personal guilt. Um, but overall, I, I do feel like as time has gone on, guilt is less of a problem for me. And I'm hoping that that's a pattern that continues. That's great. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I feel, I often feel guilty if I'm not actively engaged with her when she's awake, but I feel guilty all the time. (laughs) You know, my famous saying, I'm Catholic and Jewish, so (laughs) I'm screwed both ways. I feel guilt. I wake up in the morning and feel like I've done something wrong already. (laughs) Well, I should say, when I talk about not feeling much guilt anymore. I mean, in the sense that I don't feel guilty that I'm at work. Sure. sure. Um, I do still struggle a little bit with making sure that I am 100% engaged with the baby every time I am at home. Right. Um, which means, you know, when she wakes up at six 30 and I wake up at six 30, I'm on, like right. I'm 100% on and laughing and giggling and we're having fun and playing games. Um, and then I come home and I'm tired after a day at work, but I am on. Right. And uh, to me, that's the only way to manage it right now is to right. make sure that that I'm just on with her. Right. Because I don't see her as often as I would like. It feels different for me because I'm with her of so course. much. Yeah. Maybe a better man than I or a better woman <laughs> 
could be actively engaged nine hours a day with a six-month-old, I cannot do that. It's just impossible. Well, I and think that six-month-olds need downtime. Well, that's what I was going to say. I feel like she would be a basket case if I were constantly in her face and doing something with her. Yeah. And I know that there is time where that we spend together where I'll have her laying down on the bed, for example, or sitting up on the bed now that she sits up mm-hmm. and she'll be sitting there and I'll give her a couple toys and she'll sit there and she'll just play. Yeah. And I lay on the bed with her so that I know she's safe, but I'll be reading of something or, or something like that or answering in an email or talking on the phone to somebody. And I've got my eye on her the whole time, but she doesn't need me to be on top of her no. doing things with her. Uh, but it's strange because I still feel like, you know, if, if 10 minutes goes by and I've been able to actually read an, an article in the news on my iPad while I'm lying there with her, suddenly I go, wait a minute, 10 minutes just went by and I didn't do anything with the baby. What's wrong with me? I'm a horrible dad. Oh my God, she's going to hate me when she grows up. So, uh, you know, that's something that I, that I do deal with. You know, so. I was reading an article, uh, this was a while ago, but post-baby, where a woman was saying that uh, when her mom came to visit, she had a newborn and her mom came to visit. And at one point after a few days with her, her mother said, no wonder you're so tired. You give a hundred percent to the baby all of the time. Right. It's okay for the baby to relax. It's right. okay to not talk directly to the baby sometimes. Right. Uh, and I, you know, that's just something we had to learn. I do wish someone had said that to us early on. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of those things that, that would feel good if you sort of had permission for it. You know what? I think that's what it is. You know, and we, we have a friend who was telling me one day who has a baby a little younger than Leia who said, Oh, it's great. You know, she, she plays very well by herself. I can put her on the floor with some toys and I can't actually work, but I can answer email or check Twitter or something Mm -hmm. like that. And I remember thinking, wait, you can do that. (laughs) And this is, this is her second child. So, you know, she knows what she's doing. And I thought, you that's allowed that's that's permit <laughs> i don't have to be on top of her 24 7 and that was sort of a liberating notion yeah. for me and sometimes you know we have the little the little thing that she sits in that she she plays in the little go pod mm-hmm. and sometimes she will sit in that for half an hour and just play yeah and it's great and She's then i life. and then i sit on the sofa and and keep an eye on her but get something else done, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or go into the kitchen and get some dinner ready or whatever. It's great. So, but the guilt is still out. There's always this part of me going, this isn't right. This isn't what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be attending to her every minute that you're awake and she's awake. And it's just going to take time for me to, to get past that. You know, I'm trying to imagine if someone were demanding my attention 24 hours a day right. or every waking hour. I would hate them, and I would be a crabby thing, and would need to withdraw. And right. babies are the same; like yeah. they need their downtime. So, your advice then: guilt not useful to a mom returning to work. Well, it's, uh, is guilt ever useful? I don't know. You're that's asking the of, wrong I, guy. I am. I am. And also, that's a, a separate philosophical discussion. But uh, you know, Kate, you're awesome. You're obviously doing awesome. <laughs> I think any parent who is concerned about things like this is probably a really great parent. Would you say though, I'm just curious, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you talked about how when you wake up in the morning with her, you're a hundred percent on when you come home from work to see her, you're a hundred percent on for those two periods of time, because that's what you've got with her. Yeah. Isn't that in a way proving the utility of guilt? It's I can't be there during the day, but 
these times, you know, that, that's channeling that guilt to something good. She gets something good out of it. Absolutely. She gets that, those wonderful times uh-huh. where her mother is completely 100% focused on her. You get those times where you're so focused on her and so joyful and happy to be around her. And that comes out of it's a, a, sense of, yeah. a, a sense of guilt. Yeah. But on the weekends, I don't let myself feel that guilt and I just enjoy her. And right. sometimes that means she's sitting in the bumbo while I'm throwing things in the crock pot and right. not necessarily talking to her. So, right. you know, well, I'm always talking to her, but <laughs> <laughs> we keep up a steady, pretty steady stream of Seriously, the, the, the constant narration of our lives and the, the monologuing yeah. with the baby is, is always as, a little, uh, little as strange. As Hillary Clinton and Shirley McRae said in an event two weeks ago, talk to your baby. Talk to your baby. And we do. We do. We yeah. have to. All right. So we have talked about the baby. Now we will move on. We will talk about another kind of baby, our books. Huh. How's yours coming along? Uh, I actually wrote this week, which is super exciting. That sound you hear is our listenership cheering. <laughs> no, I, f- I feel really good about that. It was not well. I finished the chapter that I was wor- that I was in the middle of right. uh, a couple of days ago, and then even today, which normally our writing time is at night, at least mine. Sure. And today we had a few minutes, and we sat down before we went for a family walk, and I challenged you to a little write off, and um, we got interrupted because the baby woke up. Right. But um, but still, I started in the middle of the day today, which was nice, and we'll I'll do. And we took tonight. a very small amount of time, and we were productive with it. Exactly. Which is something I've always struggled with because I always have that feeling of unless I have an hour, a solid hour, it's not worth uninterrupted. It. Yeah. Why even bother? And you know, today, I mean, it was twenty minutes, like, and yeah. it was literally twenty minutes. Yeah, and got quite a bit done. Me too. So, yeah. so that I feel really good, good about that. How about you? Uh, doing well, doing well. Uh, I'm very close to 20,000 words on the manuscript, wow. which is a good feeling. Just just moving along. There's still little bits here and there that I'm unsure of, but you know, it's a first draft that's to be expected. And I, I feel really good about it. I'm, I, I know exactly where I'm headed with it now. It's all laying ahead of me now, and I, I can't wait to finish it. I can't awesome. wait to finish I it. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> you will get to very soon. <laughs> so... But I did want to talk about a couple of other things, obviously. Uh, first of all, you know, talking about the baby, Paul, who comments incessantly. And in fact... Get a job, Paul. I know. Get a job. Actually, you mentioned <laughs> that perhaps Paul deserves some sort of showrunner or producer credit with all the comments he gives. And if we had any sort of credits on this show... <laughs> We'd give them to him. We would give Paul a showrunner or producer credit. But we have no credits to offer, and so Paul must go home empty-handed. But Paul said at one point when he was discussing your working on your book and your inability to work on it as much as you would like, Mm -hmm. he said, and I quote, make your old man take care of the munchkin in the morning, okay, and then he'll nap during the day. And I just want to point out the hilarity of this, and this proves that Paul has no clue what he's talking about, because our kid, especially lately shuns naps she is not into she, napping you know hillary clinton finally has her first official opponent and it's our daughter and she's running on a strict anti-nap platform strict, for all babies yes yes globally. the nap is too damn long that is her <laughs> that is her policy so there's no way in the world i could catch up on my sleep during the day by napping when she naps but i will say paul brought up a good point 
which is he, and I think he was half joking. I hope he was joking, but he said, Morgan, get up at five uh, well, or I'm going to come. He wake said you he up would come wake you up at five. So you can write. Yeah. Um, obviously there are a ton of writers who are early morning writers because they get it out of the way and then go live their lives. And those people are crazy. <laughs> but, yeah, but it really makes me think like, first of all, when I was ghostwriting and I had a book due in five weeks and I was working full time, that's what I did. I woke up at five thirty, sat down, wrote, went to work, came home, wrote, went to bed. Right. Uh, that was in my younger days. I don't think I could do that. Anymore. But it seems to me, it seems to me. Look, everybody has the same twenty four hours in the day, uh-huh. right? No matter how much we may fight for more, we have twenty four hours in the day. And I feel like whether you get your work done at night or in the morning, it's the same hours. It's just. Time shifted one way or the other. Do you think you would be more productive and more likely to work if you woke up early? I don't Than know. you are if you come home and just do it when you get home or stay up? But first of all, I can't do it when I get home. Well, not, not when you write when you get home. Which means that usually every night the earliest I can sit down and write is 8 p.m. Sure. Baby's in bed. Dinner is eaten. Okay. Right. I'm exhausted. And there's TV. Well, there's TV, but I also, I, I think, I mean, since having the baby, we've, I think given up on a lot of TV. <laughs> well, I actually would, I would venture to guess that at this point you watch more TV than I do. Probably. Yeah. Which is mind blowing. That to me. is mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm a big TV fan as everyone knows. Um, but there's just, there's daredevil. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. So, so anyway, I, I don't know. I would actually like to try it, but I also know myself and I know that if my alarm went off at 5am or even 6am where I could get maybe half an hour or 45 minutes in before the baby wakes up, um, I would just turn off my alarm. I'm just too I tired. Would, I would throw something at your alarm <laughs> if it went off better. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's, I never understood that about people who say, oh, I just wake up an hour early and do it. And I'm like, what sick planet are you from? No, I, I wish that was me. I would rather stay up an well, hour. I late. understand that you would do that. Yeah. I'm saying right now, I do not have the mental capability right. to write well at night anymore. Right. I just don't. I'm too right. tired. I, you know this. I know. The sun sets and I'm like, yo, I'm ready for bed. Yeah. You know, so. And that's exactly how she says it. Yo, I'm ready for bed. (laughs) So anyway, it's it's tough. Uh, But, you know, it's worth an experiment. I should probably try it. Maybe give it a shot for a a, a day or two and see what happens. double espressos are for. Just kidding. I don't drink that. That would make me jump off a roof. I would be shaking so much. Well, we don't want you to jump off a roof. And the apartment is so small that if you decide to start bouncing off the walls, it would get ugly real quick. Yeah. So then we have, we have a new contributor to our comments, uh, named Sarah, and we are glad to have her. Hello, Sarah. And she says, it always bugs me when characters in fiction are also writers or dream about being poets or writers. Has this ever bugged you like it does me? I think I'm from the school of thought that there are enough writers writing what they know out there, and I'm sick of this close-to-home character. I'd like to see writers challenge themselves to write something beyond them and what they do each day. Bonus points. Have either of you ever made a writing character like that? Don't worry. I'm only half judging. Sarah, you started something. I'm going to be honest here. (laughs) You started a conversation between the two of us about um, about characters like that and whether they're good or not good or whatever. And now so, we're going to continue that conversation. Yeah. So, so I, have you ever done that? I am 90% sure that I have not. Certainly not in anything that I'm actively working on. Like not the book that got me agented and not my current book. I did have a character who was an artist and it was one of those things where I threw it in at the end so 
half-heartedly, and it, it certainly showed. But I was like, oh, this character needs to have some sort of art component, writing or drawing. And I made her an artist. <laughs> and and now I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so painfully transparent, the way I just sort of tried to layer in uh, a component of, of like, artsy. Ju- just, just add hobby. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. basically. It was yeah. like a fill-in-the-blank. Just, just add artistic obsession. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now... Obviously, this is um, this question hits a bit close to home for you. I've done it twice. I've done it twice. Yeah. Uh, I did it in my first book. Uh, Fanboy is an aspiring graphic novelist, so he's a writer and an artist. And I did it in Unsold, which was my book for adults. In both cases, I had good reasons for doing it, I think. In the case of Fanboy and Goth Girl, the whole book is about comic books and what comic books are about. And it was also very autobiographical. And when I was a kid, I wanted to create comic books. So mm-hmm. what else was I going to write about here? Uh, in the case of Unsold, I was really sort of trying to turn that sort of story on its head. It, there's a lot of inside baseball in Unsold, a lot of publishing stuff. I wanted to do it right. I wanted to show, no, everybody else who writes about being a writer... <laughs> It, it's ridiculous. There are so there are so few of these that are done well, and I really wanted to show it and do it well. And on top of that, I mean, it's a comedy. It's it's a writer who sells his soul to the devil in exchange for a best selling book. And I wanted to show sort of the the life to, to quote Thoreau, the life of quiet desperation that would lead somebody to sell their soul to the devil in exchange for this. And I feel like a lot of these sell your soul to the devil stories do it with rock stars and baseball players and, and things like that. And I thought, well, this would be sort of interesting, you know, to have a writer, to have somebody who thinks about the nature of stories get caught up in a classic story, the, the sell your soul to the devil story. So that's, that's why I did that. And I, I really, I don't think that there's any kind of story that you can look at it or any kind of character that you can look at and say, that's been done to death. I'm done with that. I think it all depends on how well you do it. Uh, You know, otherwise, I'll say something very controversial now. There would be no need to publish new romance novels. Yeah. Because romance novel at the end, happily ever after. Well, I was going to say, there would be no need to publish anything. Right. There's really only a couple of stories under the sun. There are new ways to do romances. And people doing interesting things and playing with the tropes and the notions of romance novels, and that makes them interesting. And I think, I agree, there is a lot of really terrible writing out there about writing, which amazes me because writers are writing this stuff. Well, what's interesting is I I don't, I guess I never even noticed this as a, as a trope or whatever. So, and it's certainly never bothered me in anything that I've read. I find, I shouldn't say that, there have definitely been cases where I've read a book where there's a writer in it and we see that person's writing and that annoys me because uh, yeah, I don't like, like I don't want to see someone's um, short story within a book right, for some reason right. that really bothers me, but I don't mind a character who's a writer as yeah. long as I don't have to see the writing. <laughs> right. You know, that's tough to pull off too. When, especially, especially when you have these people who are writing stories where they say, my writer character is the greatest writer in the world. And then they, and then they, yeah. and then they show some of that person's writing yeah. and you're like, so wait, I'm supposed to believe this is the best yeah. writing in the world. Uh, you know, Stephen King's book misery was interesting because that's one of the few instances where, he wrote the books within the book, but really pulled it off. He did a really good job with it. Uh, and I didn't mind reading Paul Sheldon's work inside Stephen King's work. And I think that's a testament to King's ability to sort of move Yeah, I mean, I bit. also think, um, you know, there are certain authors who are just exempt from any conversation you're having, and Stephen <laughs> King is probably one of them. Well, probably. So, you know, I don't know. I have plenty of criticisms about of course, stuff Of course, but I, I just think there are certain 
that like he's yeah. there are always exceptions to the rule well the other example the other example i was going to bring up was michael shaban's wonder boys which is ah, what's yeah. a fabulous movie and a Such terrific a movie. and a terrific novel uh-huh. and really again like every time you thought he was going somewhere into cliche writer territory he swerved and instead it was something fresh and new yeah i've never read that um you know especially spoiler alert that wonderful this was done better in the movie than in the book, actually. That wonderful moment where everybody keeps saying, where's your book? Where's your book? He goes, oh, I'm having trouble with it. And you assume he's blocked. And then he sits down to work on the book, and it's 2,117 pages long. Oh and the problem isn't that he's blocked. The problem is he can't stop writing the damn thing. And it's so well done in the movie because he's at the typewriter, and he types the page number. He goes, two, one, seven. And you think, oh, he's on page 217. And then he keeps going oh, with the funny. page number. Yeah. And it's just it's hilarious. And that, again, I mean, I, I think it all has to do with the skill and the attitude you bring towards the writer character. Yeah. And I think in a lot of cases, I think in movies in particular, I think writers are these fantasy figures for the people writing the screenplay. Yeah. They are not happy with their careers and they're not happy with the way things have gone because writers are treated pretty badly in Hollywood. Yeah. And so they write these writer characters who have it all right. as, a, as a way of working out their issues. Yeah. I'm curious, though. I wonder if Sarah has problems with um, movies about actors or, uh, you know. Songs about musicians. Songs about, exactly. We so could go on and on and could. on. So anyway, just curious. But it was a, a very interesting It is. It is an thought. interesting question. Yeah. And, I, and while I disagree with the blanket statement, I understand the irritation. Yeah. No question. There's definitely a part of me that if somebody gives me a book and says, this is a book about a writer, I'm going to really think twice about it before I open it up. Yeah. Speaking of thinking twice before opening up a book, I've been thinking a lot lately because we do recommended reading or what are you reading every week on this show. And I've been having a lot of trouble. And you you made fun of me at one point early on because I was reaching back through the decades. You were going into the archives. I was going into the archives for books I had read and enjoyed. And that's because my reading has really tapered off a lot lately. And that's that's a horrible thing. I feel horrible saying that. It's a horrible thing to admit as a writer and as a lifelong reader, somebody who loves to read. It's a tough thing to admit. And I've been trying to figure out why. You mean uh, apart from time? Well, that but that's just it. It, it. It's that the way I am used to reading, the way I've read my whole life is I get a book and I go and I sit in a room somewhere and I close the door and I open the book and I don't emerge until I've finished the book. And... I can't do that anymore. Like in order to read a book, I have to read it in little 10 minute chunks or 20 minute chunks, or I read, you know, a chapter before I go to bed and then it's 24 hours before I read another chapter. And I realize that's how the normal human beings read. But on my planet, that's not how we read. Mm -hmm. And, and it's sort of the difference between I used to be, you know, a sprinter and now a marathoner Mm -hmm. and it's a whole different set of muscles and it's a, it's a transition period for me. And sometimes quite honestly, it's easier just to say, well, I have 20 minutes to read tonight before I go to bed, but I'll do something else instead. Cause it's only 20 minutes and it just doesn't feel worth it. And so, so I hope people will write in and tell me like that it is worth it, that it is, it's worth sticking with it. Even, even, even this is such a, uh, an example of someone who hasn't had to commute for a very long time. Well, that's true. Like, that's what you do. You but read I, on your 20-minute well, commute. But when know? I commuted, when I commuted, I was driving well, that's back what I'm in the day. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I'm just saying, I guess you've just never had that experience where that's a standard way of reading is right. in small chunks. I'm a New Yorker who never learned how to read on the subway. 
Because I never had to. Because you don't take the subway often. Right. Yeah. 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 So I guess I'm saying, I guess my point here is... um, Hashtag self-employed problems? No, like, (laughs) seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I will say that's why I think right now I'm really enjoying reading essays and short stories and things like that. Because it just fits perfectly. So, Or, on the other end, um, novels that are not particularly challenging. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're or, great reads. Or, or dense. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I can pick up and put down and, and be fine with it. So right. okay. You can do it. I have faith in you. I'm just, you know, I just, it's a Catholic thing. I had to unburden myself. I had to confess and there you go. Now I have. So you'd think I would feel better, but I don't. Talking a lot about religion tonight there, Bear. <laughs> For someone who's actually not religious, you're talking yeah, I, a lot about it. <laughs> I know. I know. I can't help it. It, it's, it sticks with you. Even after you get rid of it, it, it clings. The last thing I want to talk about before we get to our recommended reading and what are you reading is, uh, is a question from Paul. Okay. I tried to break up the Paul stuff. Did you <laughs> notice? Question from Paul. He wanted to talk about writers groups, which yeah. I think is a really interesting topic. And he says, uh, Morgan, you're part of a great one with some of his favorite writers. Mm-hmm. He's such a kiss up. <laughs> uh, and Barry, you fly solo. And he wants to talk us to talk about the pros and cons of each approach. Yeah. So go ahead. I mean, what, what do you get out of your writer's group? Well, so it's interesting. I have my writer's group. I also have a couple of other writers who we don't have anything official, but we email fairly often and discuss our writing status and we exchange manuscripts and, and whatnot. And both of them are really nice relationships. Now, the challenges of having a writing group that is filled with your friends <laughs> as you can imagine, is that often it takes us a while to actually get to the writing and to the critiques, Um, especially as life gets busy and we all have kids. I was going to say you're all mothers. Yeah. And so um, we don't see each other as often as we used to. And now when we do, I feel like there's a lot of catching up to do just on life in general. Right. And then we dive into the writing. We actually haven't met in quite a while. There was a meeting last month that I that was the night I got stuck on the subway right. and, um, and for various reasons could not make it. So we actually haven't met, I haven't met with them since before the baby came. So it's, it's been a long time, Very long. but I really like it. I think it holds you accountable. Uh, and for me, especially as someone who likes to procrastinate, I need to be held accountable sometimes. So it's great to be in a writer's group and be able to say, Oh, next month I'm being critiqued. And that means I need to send everyone my, work in progress by this date so that they can read it. So, and I don't want to flake out on them. They're counting on me to read it. And plus I want their feedback. So, um, so I think the accountability part of it is really good. Now, if you're a writer who doesn't have an accountability problem, then, then fine. You probably don't need that aspect of it, but I will say that I think a critique partner, um, or partners and, or a writing group, I think that's required for every writer at this point, because, I think if you're just flying solo and no one's looking at your work, you're missing a lot of opportunities. Do you think beyond the accountability, though, that, I mean, their actual advice, oh, their actual comments absolutely. are helpful? And I'm glad you said that because I, I don't want them to all think like, oh, Morgan just uses us as like a calendar or something. Um, no, the brainstorming that happens is really awesome. Um, and I think part maybe part of the problem that some people have with writers group groups 
is that you need to find one that you fit into and that fits into your work. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. And so it's, it's just been really helpful for me. Um, and some of my critique partners too, I've met them randomly and, and we just hit it off. And so when I send my manuscript to someone and they come back with really interesting thoughts, that I wouldn't have thought of. I mean, that's what it's all about is this, this exchange of ideas and different perspectives that really help you. Even if you take 1% of what they say into consideration, that's a big deal. Like that's helping you improve your work. And it's, it's really useful. And I was going to say, you and I have spoken about this in the past, but I think your writers group in particular is sort of the ideal situation for you. I have always felt that you want to be in a group that is a little more advanced than you are. Yeah. Which can be a tough thing mm-hmm. to, to arrange and to get into. And certainly, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I was in a regular writer's group that met every month, that was my situation where many of the people in the group were published. Many of them were multiple published authors and I had not published anything. Mm-hmm. And so that was really helpful for me because it gave me something to aspire to. It gave me examples to look at. Yep. It gave me something to, to reach for. And they were able to give me advice on a lot of things and, and clear a lot of things up for me. So I think that's always a good situation to be in. Mm-hmm. Now you've been published, obviously you're a ghostwriter, but you haven't no, been published under your name. It's, yeah. It is, it's a different, it's a very different thing. So I think that's one of the great things about your group. And that's what I always encourage people find a group that's ahead of you and get into that one. And uh-huh. it doesn't have to be, you know, don't get into Stephen King and James Patterson's writing group. Like that ain't going to happen, but there's going to be a group of, of people who are a little bit ahead of you. Get into that one. You always want to be, you always want to be reaching and striving, mm-hmm. you know, to, to match up to the people that you're with, because then also that competitive instinct will come in as yeah. well. You know, I, yeah, I haven't, I used to have a, a group that I would exchange manuscripts with. There were, there were about three of us, I guess, a few years ago that we would all share manuscripts with each other. And that just sort of disintegrated and fell apart through nobody's fault. We just all got really busy. And, you know, one thing that that happens sometimes when you're doing this professionally is you can't wait to get feedback sometimes. Sometimes the exigencies of the situation are such that you can't wait, you know? That happens in our writing group a lot where someone will say, um, send out something and then by the time we meet, they're like, you know what? I already already got my edits back from my editor and right. I've rewritten it and we're done. So yeah, there's, moving on. S- sometimes you just, you can't wait. Everybody is busy. Every, yeah. You know, I, I used to make a concerted effort to have at least four different people read my manuscripts before I sent them to my editor. And it was not that difficult because there was you <laughs> and I know where you live. <laughs> so it was easy to get something to you. And my brother, who's actually a very good reader, I usually tell people not to have family members, especially siblings, read their work because family members generally want to say nice things to you. (laughs) My brother, as you know, enjoys ripping my heart out and stomping on it. So there is nobody better to tell me when I've screwed something up because he has no problem reading something extremely critically. And meanwhile, I send my stuff to Kelly and she's always like, it's amazing. <laughs> Let's go get a drink. Let's go get great. a drink. There you go. <laughs> she just wants the drink. So, so I always had two built in and then I, you know, as my career advanced, I found that 
there were more and more impressive writers who <laughs> were willing to look at my stuff, which was great because I really admire and respect these people. And what I found was the downside of that is they're really busy. Yeah. And, you know, there were times where I would say, okay, here it is. Like, take a month, you know, and, yeah. and get back to me. Take a month and a half and get back to me. And a month and a half will go by and they're like, I'm sorry, I still yeah. haven't had a chance to read it. And although I desperately wanted their opinion at that stage, I couldn't wait. Mm -hmm. And I, it had to move on. Yeah. And what happened was the first couple of times that happened, I was very nervous sending the manuscript to my editor. Okay. And because it had only been looked at by a couple of people and I was used to having more people look at it. And I sent it to my editor those first couple times, and the world did not end. <laughs> my editor did not say, you're an idiot, you suck, what happened to you? My God, you used to be good, man. <laughs> and so I became a little more confident that it's great to have that feedback and those opinions, but I started to feel like, you know what, I've been doing this long enough, and I'm good enough at it that I feel pretty confident giving early work to my editor, even if... I have not had a number of eyes on it. I still like the fact that you look at it, at it and that my brother looks at it, but I don't stress about it anymore. Hmm. And maybe that is maybe that is overweening self-confidence and that will be my fatal flaw. That will be my downfall. But the other thing that helped too was seeing what some authors turn into their editors. Okay. By which I do not mean to bash other authors, but there are authors who, for example will turn something into their editor that has a blank page in it that says on the blank page, exciting yet dark scene to come <laughs> because they That's have no, idea, they have no idea what they're going to do there, but they know it's going to be exciting and dark. They just haven't figured it out yet. I would never in a million years turn that into my editor. Yeah. Right. And that's not to say that I'm doing it right and they're doing it wrong. It's just that I've come to realize that even, even if I'm concerned about, the status of my draft editors have seen drafts that are even jankier than mine. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's okay yeah. to do that. So I don't worry about it as much. And, but I'm, I'm always happy to have people read things, you know, with the secret C Gordon Corman, very, very generously volunteered to read it and, and made basically three comments, all of which were pure gold. <laughs> and, and Gordon is awesome and made those comments and, Two of them changed the book for the better. Wow. One of them I couldn't figure out how to implement, and then I figured out a way to cheat, and I did, <laughs> and it works. So, yeah, I, I think it's really important to have people look at your work ahead of time, especially the earlier you yeah. are in your career, you know, uh, but you should always have another set of eyes on it at some point. So your anecdote about um, people turning in books with blank pages and saying TK, yeah. um, that just reminds me that probably the biggest takeaway I've had from my writing group, from this particular group is kind of similar and it changed quite literally the way that I write books, which is awesome. And it's all thanks to Melissa Walker, who I feel like gets almost just as many shout outs as Paul does. I kind of feel like the <laughs> two of them are in cahoots. They are. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Melissa, as she's writing, she'll just put TK, um, you know, TK, look up a car or right. TK insert a kissing scene or t you know, and I swear to you, as I read the first thing that I read of hers during writing group, I was like, Oh my God, I can do that. Right. Why have I not been doing that? Because right. I can sometimes get caught up and be like, Oh, well I need to get through this really complicated scene or I need to stop and go research this very quickly so I can add it in and whatever. Right. Um, 
And then as you revise, just do a, a search for all of the TKs and find those missing spots and go fill them in and, and go from there. Um, so it's just really funny, like actual, real, practical how-to advice um, that changed the way I write is a result of my writing group. So yeah. yeah. Thanks, ladies. Yeah, I mean that you know whether you turn it into an editor like that or not, it can be helpful to you. Yeah, just just to to do that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I I do that infrequently. Yeah, I'm more likely to just skip to another scene okay. and then come back later. Yeah, uh, I don't put any sort of reminder to myself in there. I just usually stop in the middle of a sentence and I know when I come back to it. Oh yeah, right, I forgot to do that, <sighs> and then I finish it. Yeah. So yeah, I, it, you know, I, I've always told people. You know, people have always asked me about writing in linear fashion, and I always say, look, you can write the book forwards, you can write it backwards, you can write it sideways, you can write it diagonally if you can figure out how to do it. Uh, it doesn't matter, just as long as it gets done mm-hmm. and it's good. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's helpful. So let's talk about uh, some recommended reading and what we're, what we're powering through right now. What have you got that you're working on? Um, so this is... <laughs> This is funny, and I've told you this, but um, I feel like people aren't going to believe me. But currently, I am reading After the Red Rain, which is your upcoming book with Uh, Peter Fascinelli. You're you're doing this to me. Yeah, well, listen, here's what happened. So as you know, uh, I read the first version. Yeah. It has changed so dramatically since then. And you've got these arcs sitting out here in the office. and Signed by Peter Facinelli, <laughs> and you can win one if you listen to last, week, uh-huh. last week's podcast. So go listen to episode 12. Go ahead. <laughs> and I lent out my e-reader to my sister, and she still has it. So I've been going through a lot of actual print books that I, that I have a stack of. Dead trees, man. I know. It's the best. And I was suddenly like, oh, I, I've been meaning to reread, or read, I should say, the final version of After the Red Rain. So I am. And I... Love it. I think the changes you made are awesome. She has to say this, folks. I no, fathered I her child upon her. I swear. Um, so I'm really enjoying it. So oh, thank you. It's, you know, thank you. It's, it's got a great pace, and um, the prologue is a killer. And uh, and I'm, I'm just really enjoying it. So Well, thank you. That thank is you. what I am reading. Thank you. A, you. a nice shout-out to Peter and Rob. Yes. There, you go. Great, there you go. Great job, team. Well, thank you very much. That book will be available on August 4th. <laughs> you can pre-order it now on Amazon, iBooks, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, all those places. Come on. You know, I got a kid. I got to send her to college someday. <laughs> t- t- toss some money my way, people. All right. You're getting this podcast for free, you know? <laughs> uh, so I am reading right now the book that I discussed last week that okay. shall still remain nameless. I got past 50 pages. And uh, this book is really still bothering me. Uh. And I want to talk a little bit about why. And I'm not sure if I'm going to finish it or not. We'll see. But it's a, it's a thriller. It's a serial killer thriller. Maybe having written serial killer thrillers myself, I'm tough to please now with them. But I don't think so because I've read some since and I've enjoyed them. But one of the things that is bothering me about this, and this is going to sound horrible and xenophobic, but I hope people will understand what I'm getting at. It is written by an English author and it takes place in America with American characters. So it's not, when I first saw that it was a British author and it was set in New York, I thought, Oh, this is interesting. Like it's going to be a British cop who comes to New York or whatever, you know, a little fish out of water type thing. Like that would be really interesting. No. And so many Britishisms in this book and it's driving me crazy. Yeah. I mean, the people talk, like, 
not entirely, but there are certain ticks and there are certain differences between American English and British English, obviously. Mm. And this guy's tripping over them. Huh. And he's got his American characters saying things that no American would ever say. Yeah. And it's yanking me right out of the book. And, you know, I mean, obviously there are some differences in the way uh, the language is constructed. Of course. Syntactically, grammatically. Beyond that, because I realize that all sounds like nitpicking. And like I said, it could be xenophobia. People say, oh, who cares if a character sounds a little British? What's the big deal? Get over it. Who cares? But then there are, there are just these these things that just don't ring true. And the characters seem like they're posing and posturing as opposed to actually acting and interacting and reacting with each other. And so it's vexing me. You know, you're the one who said a few episodes ago when we were talking about the 50 page rule or the 10 page, whatever, when you put down a book, um, you're the one who said, if you find yourself counting down to 50 pages, then you've already lost, put down the book. And here you are spending what you've just admitted is very little reading time that you have uh, on a book that you are still not sure that you want to read. It's interesting. I'm just observing. I contain multitudes. I'm a complex man. I am just curious to see, can this guy turn it around? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I just finished a book that I really liked that I told you about. Um, Katie Allender's Famous Last Words. And it's the first... Which is what I thought you were going to recommend for reading. I did almost, yeah. Um, And it's the first Katie Allender book I've read. It's a YA. And I really liked it. I thought it was super well written, really witty, um, just a nice inventive plot. Um, But as I said to you, there's a, there's a bit of a murder mystery going on. Right. And, um... I knew by about page 60 who was going to be the murderer. And yet I continued reading because I was really enjoying the book. Sure. And of course the book ended and I was right, which I am literally never right about these things. Yeah. I ne- First of all, I don't try to guess who, right. who done it. And I'm usually always wrong because I'm not paying a lot of attention to, to those clues, but I knew right away and still it didn't ruin the book for me at all. See, and to me, you know, let, let, let me go off on a little rant here. Maybe we'll talk about this at another time as well. But to me, that's the mark of a good book. Agreed. When you've got it figured out, but you're curious to see what happens. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, you know, I've seen some people comment on a couple of the killer's books where they say, well, I figured it out. And I'm like, so? Right. Yeah. So what? Yeah. It's not a puzzle. It's a book. I'm not challenging you. It's not a competition. Uh Did you enjoy the book? Did you enjoy the ride? And also a lot of times when they say they figured it out. They figured out the wrong thing. Yeah. They're patting themselves on the back for solving the mystery that was there that they were supposed to solve. Yeah. You know, somebody tweeted uh, a little while back about the killer's books said, I get the feeling sometimes he puts in things I'm supposed to figure out to distract me from the things I'm not supposed nice. to figure out. Yeah. And I retweeted that and said, we have a winner. Yeah. Like, yeah, like that's what you do. And you know, when I wrote the first killer's book, my, my early readers, I had a couple of early readers on that figured out very easily who the killer was. And I was stunned by this because I said, Oh, you were trying to figure it out. Like I didn't, I was like, why would you even try to figure it out? I wasn't thinking of it as a whodunit. I was thinking of it as a, how do we stop it? Okay. You know, it, it wasn't about who's doing it. It's how do we stop this person? It doesn't matter who it is. How do we stop them? And one of the readers said to me, well, Jazz is trying to figure it out and I'm reading about jazz. So of Uh, course I tried to figure it out because I'm with jazz. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. So I went back and I I did some more work on it to make it a little more difficult. But yeah, to this day, I I always find it interesting. I I, I feel like if that's all a book has going for it, 
if that's all it is is a who done it and yeah. you figure it out halfway through then that's that's, that's bad yeah. but if there's more to it mm-hmm. if the who done it is just a a, a fraction of what the book is yeah. then if you figure that out but you don't figure out the emotional development of the characters right. and the arc and the this and the that and and the motivations and all those other things who the hell cares? Well, it's also kind of like saying, I mean, with every romance or every rom-com or whatever, you know they're going to You know they're together. getting together. But that's not the point. You're still really enjoying it. Right. So well, are you thing. enjoying it yeah, is the well, thing. The if thing. you are yeah. enjoying it, then that person has done a really exactly. good job. If not, then you throw your hands up in uh-huh. the air and you go, eh, you know. Yeah. So, all right. I just wanted to get that off my chest. Yeah. I feel better now. So, yeah. and I think that, that's great that you figured it out, but you still enjoyed the book. I and I'm proud of you that you figured it out. Good for you. <laughs> good for you. That's something new now. Thanks. So, <laughs> so that is it for us this week. We've had a great time. Hope you have too. Thank you for listening. We are online at writinginreallife.com. We are on Twitter at WIRL Podcast. Please come follow us, send stuff to us, go to our contact form, give us more ideas for things to talk about, comment, share us, like us, do all that that crazy social nonsense people do. Don't forget, subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us on iTunes. Please rate us. We love the rating. Every time you rate us on iTunes, an angel gets its wings. Thanks a lot, everybody. We will be back next week. Bye.